1: talking to an extreme athlete like maybe you've never heard about before, and I'm so excited. It's Luke Taberski from London by way of Australia, and I want to find out about your globe-trotting journeys before we even get into the, the competitions that you've done. So right now you're, you're based in London, uh, but you blew through the North American continent too. So maybe we should start there with your athletic background and how it kind of led to this, this incredible stuff that you're doing recently.
2: Uh, thanks for having me on today, Brad. It's a it's a pleasure to chat with you. And I, I've been a I've been a follower of yours for for many years, so I love all the stuff that you're doing as as well. So my, my journey started in Australia, and I left there at the ripe old age of uh, I think it was 20 or just 21, and I went over to America to pursue my soccer career. And I went to college over there for a couple of years, and then bounced around in the in the lower level leagues um, in. New Orleans, San Francisco, and also uh, um, Orlando too. So I've got a good taste of the entire country, really. So you
1: had this total focus to be a soccer player when you were young, made it all the way over here, played at the high level in college and then in these uh, professional leagues. But I guess at a certain point, it's going to wind down. Um, It's hard to make a living, I imagine, unless you're in the top leagues. Um, so, how old were you, and then where did you? Uh, what What were you thinking at that time when you felt like it was time to time to go?
2: Yeah, so I still I was twenty five, I think, when I left the US, and I I was still head down, really focused on continuing to play the game that I that loved. I played professional in in Australia for for numerous years. Like I started training full time when I was sixteen, so I was at quite an elite level when I was younger, um, and then. Developed a little bit in the US and then went over to the UK and had some trials over here. Didn't have too much success. Had a little bit of success, and then ended up actually in Belgium. And I played in the lower leagues over in Belgium. So I got a nice sort of um, taste of Europe, and I loved it over there. I, I learned how to speak French. And you know, one one day we would go to Germany for lunch, and the next day we would go to Holland for lunch because we were right near the the borders there. And yeah, you know, it was just such a really cool time. And then I moved back to the UK and I played again in the lower leagues. And then I had this three-year battle where I was on and off getting injured, uh, soft tissue injuries. I had three surgeries in 11 months when it was at its worst um, point and all different parts of the body. And I had a major back injury. I had to have injections. And I was a pin cushion for all this sort of stuff. So I, right now, I've been in London now for just over 10 years I have an amazing medical team around me in London because I've had so many injuries in my previous sort of life as a, as a soccer player that I got, I was able to connect with some of the top um, uh, different medical um, uh, therapists and physicians over here. So that sort of, that was my transition from football to endurance sports where my basically body kept breaking down. And I decided that, you know, after three years of, not really having a long time a long term contract, it was always like month to month or a few games here. Then I decided to retire and at that age, I was twenty eight and decided to throw myself into ultra endurance sports
1: so you had some extra energy, some unfinished business in the athletic realm, and, and most people kind of cruise over to uh, the community leagues for soccer or whatever you're doing. Uh, but these, these ambitions that you set right out of the gate, this is absolutely shocking. You're, you're saying that your first ever running race uh, was this crazy uh, Marathon de Saab, Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah some uh, keen endurance listeners have probably heard of that. But why don't you describe your first race and then take us down Mount Everest and all the other crazy stuff that happened
2: after that? So my first ever running race was the Marathon des Sables, which is basically <laughs> the simplest way to sum it up is it's, six, it's the equivalent of six marathons in seven days through the middle of the Sahara Desert and you carry everything you need for the entire week in your backpack. So it's self-supported. The only thing you don't have to carry is a tent. They pitch, well, it's like a two-sided tent for you in the, in the middle of the desert. And you don't have to carry your entire water supply for the entire week, but you're given water each day and several checkpoints throughout the day, but it's rationed. You can't have unlimited amount of water. You're, you're told you're allowed this amount of uh, bottles of water each day. You have like a little punch card that you have like a little elasticated clip on your hip and you come to an aid station and they clip your number and they give you a bottle and then you run to the next aid station, they give you one bottle, and you get to the finish line, they give you two bottles, and basically it's, it's rationed water while you're running, you know, 155 miles through the middle of the Sahara Desert. But the crazy thing is, and this is the way I like to explain it to people, is because I don't quite understand um, what I mean by self-supported, is, yeah, you've got to carry everything you need. So imagine what you eat for breakfast on Monday morning, And what you're going to eat for breakfast on Sunday morning, and then everything in between, you have to put all of that food, everything you're going to eat through that whole week, you've got to put that into your backpack. But that entire week, remember, you're running 155 miles in that week. So you've got to toss up between, do I load it up with loads of food, (laughs) or (laughs) am I going to be in a massive calorie debt each day?
1: Oh my gosh, the strategy is so cool there. I, I had no idea that there was that element to it. I thought you just tried to get to the bloody finish line and maybe there was a smorgasbord of uh, treats and sweets and things uh, at, the, at the nearest outpost. But uh, I guess the, the number one advantage that comes to mind would to be a, a ketogenic athlete where you can operate on, on body fat and making ketones. But of course, that takes a lot of preparation in advance. And you're telling us this was your first race ever. So what did you do coming into this thing, man?
2: So, I, I came from a very traditional sport, um, team sport nutrition um, background. You know, I, I have a degree in exercise science, so I know a, 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 a grain of sand about the body, I like to say. Um, but I've always been a keen learner, and I dove into sports nutrition as a 14, 15 year old kid. Read a lot of Louisa Burke's studies, um, a sports nutritionist out of Australia, and very stereotypical carbohydrates are your fuel, you need protein for recovery to build muscles, and fat is just bad. Don't eat it at all. Like, and as a 14, 15-year-old kid, I used to tell my mum, no, don't make mashed potatoes with butter, mom. Uh, just boil them and I'll eat them like that. That's better for me. So this was, this was the research, right? Back in, I'm talking mid-90s, early 90s. This is the research and I, in team sports. That's what we were told and that was it. So I came to do the Marathon de Sables straight off the back, six months after I retired from football. And what did I do? I, I had no real running background. I didn't have any real I had a few friends that did marathons and stuff, but they were like, you gotta have gels every hour and all the rest of it. So I listened to them and I bought <laughs> run as well. You know, like what I didn't know. So I started to research this. And I was like, oh yeah, do this. So I, I dove into the whole stereotypical new runner. You've got to have a gel every 30 minutes and this and that. And Anyway, so that was my strategy to start with. But I also realized that I couldn't carry enough fuel. So I laid out in, in my house where I was staying before I went. So, okay, I'm going to have one energy bar here and I'm going to have two gels for like my, oh, you know, no. 20, 22 miles. <laughs> your and living room
1: carpet's getting completely covered with gels and bars and you, yeah. you, you can't even fit it
2: in your backpack. This is hilarious. So then I kept taking one out and one out and one out and I realized I'm not, I don't have hardly any food here and the cutoff is you have to have a minimum of 2,000 calories a day on average to be let into the race. So you get into the middle of the desert and they check your nutrition and it's, to be fair, it's, it's quite stringent that they, they check what your gel is, they, how much it is, they count them or whatever. You've got to show them and I averaged 2,200 calories a day over the seven days. So here's the really cool thing. I think you'll love this. So I come from traditional sports nutrition background from a team sports perspective. I go out and do this race on 2,200 calories a day and I'm running in the Sahara Desert. So I'm burning more calories because my body's overheating. Um, It's on sand. So I'm working really hard. Plus I'm, I'm running a lot. I get back from the desert. I did quite well, although I had a few niggles and injuries out there, but I did quite well. And after the first day I was, 20 something out of a thousand people. The second day, I was 30 something. The third day, I was still in the top 50. Um, but then my knee went and my toes got all blistered. And basically, I half blew up and had to have an intravenous drip in the middle of the desert and got a three hour time penalty. And I think I finished 200th or something like that. But I got back and I'm like, hang on a second, hang on. I took like nowhere near enough nutrition to fuel these days of running. Like basically I looked at our runner's world and went, well, they're all lies. Like that's not true because I went out and performed at quite a high level having no real food. I'm like no real, uh, not enough carbohydrates. And I'm like, hang on, there must be something else here. So then I dove into the non-glossy pages of sports nutrition and found out about ketogenic diets, found out about being fat adapted. And so from 2000 and Thirteen till now, I've experimented um, being fat adapted. I've experimented, uh, like say, low carb, high fat. I've experimented with with ketogenic diet for periods of time, and um, yeah, and it's it's been this it was this really cool sort of eye opening experience because I was a bit like this doesn't make any sense. So that's that's still how I train and how I eat today. I, I'm definitely not ketogenic, but if you looked at my diet, you would say I'm a lower- carb athlete and a higher fat um, athlete um, than the traditional endurance athlete. So that's the cool little story that I thought you might enjoy.
1: You did it backwards, man. Most people <laughs> grab a book off the shelf, read about it, decide to try the diet, maybe someday do a race, and you uh, you got all these insights in reverse. That's That's incredible.
2: Yeah. And, and the other thing that really was highlighted to me as well is you, you, you mentioned this before, I ran down Mount Everest um, from base camp in the world's highest ultra marathon. So when I retired, for context for the listeners, when I retired from soccer, I didn't play at any really high level. I didn't have a, a lot of savings. And I was just like, well, what am I going to do now? And I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to be this big ultra endurance adventurer where I'm going to travel around the world and do these big crazy challenges and I'm going to write books about them. I'm going to have documentaries made about them. I'm going to have brands who sponsor me and I'm going, to have mag- I'm going to write magazine articles. So I had this big crazy scheme. So I was like, right, I have to go and do these big crazy challenges. So I was Googling all these different races and found the world's highest ultra marathon. So then I thought, right, that's cool. I want to go out to Nepal. And I got in touch with the race director. And I said, look, are there any elite Nepalese ultra runners that I could maybe come and live with before we go up to Everest and do the race? Like it was a total swing for the fences, right? And he was like, yep, sure, it'll cost you this much and, and we can do this and you can go and stay with these guys here and then you can change and go and stay with this family over here. And I was like, fine. So I actually spent um, about four weeks in total in two different families high up in rural Nepal. Like I'm talking Three buses, about eight hours of traveling, then about an eight-hour hike to this ridge where there's this family living in a mud hut with a thatched roof, no electricity, no running water, um, you yeah, know 3,000 meters or about 10,000 feet above sea level. Um, the buffaloes, goats, chickens, like literally live off the land. And I went and stayed with these families, and it was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So I'm with these runners, right? And every day we we go for a run and go to the run up to there and go for a run over to this mountain and that mountain. Is okay, and one I'm trying to keep up with them because it's also at altitude, and two that like quite good runners. And we would go out for you know four or five hours, and they might may take something to eat. They may take a few chickpeas in their pocket um, or, or or a few seeds or stuff like this, but that's it. So then. That was the next evolution of my experimenting was basically I threw myself into the deep end, but I'm going to eat what they eat. I'm going to, I'm going to do what they do to try and learn from them. And some of them have gone on to do quite well. One of them, IT Tumeng, um, I think it was in 2013 or 2014. He finished 10th in the, or 11th, I think, in the UTMB uh, in his first ever 100-mile race. So, Which race is that? Uh, UTMB, Ultra Trail Mont Blanc.
1: Oh, okay. So against real elite international competitors. And this guy, these guys that you train with are Nepalese or are they yeah. congregating there? Oh, okay. So you went to really live with the locals. Yeah, 100%. This thing.
2: Wow. Yeah. 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 And then, so I learned even more about anecdotally and just from a, another athlete's perspective and, and an elite athlete, right? Finished, you know, I think he finished 11th. It was the year that um, Rory Bosio finished seventh overall. So he was 11th overall but top 10 in the men's and just learning from them was really cool. So then I went, trekked up to base camp you know, four weeks later to run back down in the race but I got Jardia about four oh. days before the race and I was vomiting and had diarrhea and I literally didn't consume anything for four days, no water, no food, no nothing. I couldn't keep it down. I I became super ripped and lean and I could see like um, the little... That's
1: the pictures in your book and your (laughs) uh, media profile page. Here's Luke, the athlete, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not quite because I definitely looked like there was something wrong with me. But my my point being is apart from it, it was a crazy adventure and really cool, I also then covered the 65 kilometers from base camp back down to Lukla where the race finished and I couldn't eat anything. So I went four days hiking from halfway up Mount Everest to the base camp and then without drinking, without eating, without holding anything down. I tried to force stuff down, but it came back up and then had to cover, mind you, very slowly, the 65 kilometres, so 40, 40 miles, back down to Lukla and it was only later that night when I kept the first bit of food down. So alongside the cool adventure story, my whole nutrition journey was like you know, there's, there's got to be more to the fact that you know you don't have to just live off carbohydrates. There is a such a different fuel source here, and and that sort of that was sort of my own personal experiment with nutrition, but also um, forced to be in that situation because I couldn't stomach any food. But I was you know five thousand four hundred meters above sea level, halfway up <laughs> Mount Everest, and I had to get down the mountain to catch a plane to leave the following day
1: have you engaged with any medical professionals or or physiology uh, experts to you know inform them of your your feats and have them put that into their minds when uh they're you know spitting out their research and uh, adhering to the uh, the conventional wisdom that this stuff is impossible without uh sufficient caloric intake and so forth
2: yeah so i've <laughs> i always have interesting conversations with uh, nutritionists or dieticians or things like this that are taught it's what they're taught at university based off 1980 science. And, <laughs> and
1: I, I, we have a guest speaker today <laughs> and he's going to tell us about what he did on no food, no calories, no
2: water. Oh my goodness. And it's like, I can give my obviously anecdotal evidence, right? But I also know that I can reel off and like you could as well reel off a dozen names, if not more of people who have done Similar things to me in terms of like putting the body under stress, doing a physical activity, and eating minimal nutrition or or eating minimal to no carbohydrates. And the thing that they always come back to me is, "Oh, well, you're an anomaly." And I'm like, "Oh, well, mercy!" And I'm like, "Well, well, come on now, you're I'm not- a bloody
1: soccer player that had no experience and went into the marathon to sob with no training, and oh my gosh."
2: Yeah, and the other yeah. thing that I the other thing I get as well and I just sort of roll my eyes is they it's it's really weird. The conversation might go for 20 or 30 minutes and I will keep putting my case forward and just say, well, look, can you tell me then why you would why you need to have 30 grams of carbohydrate every hour but you can do this? And they always go to the the research suggests and the research suggests. And I and I always ask them and I would say 99.9% of the time they get stuck on this question. I always ask them, well, when are these scientific studies, like let's be honest, that are paid by sports nutrition companies to get the results they want, um, when these scientific studies that are shown that are proven for you need to eat this amount of carbohydrates every hour, blah, 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 who are they done on? And they either don't know or I will say to them, you know who they're done on? Elite athletes that are performing at their absolute highest peak now, that is 0.1% of the general public of endurance sports or runners, right? So then why would that same, that same sort of science be the same for an athlete who can nowhere near push themselves the same as an elite athlete, who's not training as much as an elite athlete? So why would it be the same? And you know what I get, Brad? Silence. Silence. <laughs> Uh, But that's what the science says. And I'm like, okay, fine. You have your science. I'll move on. So that's the conversation that I've had numerous times over the last six or seven years.
1: Yeah, I guess the elite athlete may not be the best role model for most people because they may be a succeeding in spite of their dietary practices or whatever other lifestyle habits that they they tout as as part of their winning formula. I mean, we, we know the the athletes in the in the NBA and the the professional soccer leagues are drinking their sugary drinks uh, all the time and uh, eating at the training table with you know sort of uh, mainstream food offerings, and except for a select few who are you know pursuing the 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 outer limits and in, in going outside that scope uh but yeah so i mean if they're succeeding in spite of themselves or they're you know eating a certain way and that's you know part of their part of their genetic uh, attributes that might not work for another person
2: 100%
1: 100% so tell us about your uh, triathlon endeavors now now that you're on the board as an extreme ultra runner and then you wanted to mix it up and and do some creative stuff.
2: Yeah. So my whole plan was, as I said, to be this big ultra endurance adventurer. And I thought, right, to for the world to take me serious. And there is a there is an underlying story um, that is sort of pushing me along this way. We might go, we'll come full circle, and we'll we'll touch on that at the end because we're sort of halfway through at the moment. I thought if if people are going to take me serious and I'm really going to like make a career out of this, I need to do something big, right? Because let's be honest, a thousand people that do the marathon desabs every year, so that's not really going to make me stand out from a from a business perspective. So I went to Nepal. That was a really cool story. That was great. And I thought, right, what what can I do? This really big. And I looked at a, I stared at a world map, quite literally at my laptop, and I sort of zoomed it in and out, and I was looking at a world map. And it's it's weird because and I say this tongue-in-cheek, this little, this little gap between Spain and Morocco popped out at me, the Gibraltar Strait.
0: Oh,
1: that's easy thought, to swim across. Come on, pick something hard.
2: And I thought, I wonder if I could swim uh, uh, between, between that. I wonder if I can swim that. And then I, I looked at the south of Spain and I thought, oh, the Mediterranean, I, I, you know, I've been there. That looks really nice. I wonder if I could cycle along the Mediterranean on, this, on the southeast um, uh, spanish coast i thought oh yeah i could cycle that and i said well swim cycle run okay where where's the next country run along the south of france beautiful and then there's monaco and i went morocco to monaco that's what i'm going to do so i spent sort of you know 12 months researching and, and seeing if it, if it was actually doable and you know i had no background as a swimmer i could swim because i grew up in australia but you know i would swim one length of the pool and need half an hour before i could go back because I just wasn't a swimmer. Cycling, I used to cycle to my friend's place on my old rusty mountain bike but never had a road bike or anything like that before and I'd only just started my running career, right? So I was a complete newbie. I gave myself 4 years to do this challenge. That's probably the only logical step of this whole process that I actually gave myself several years. So I thought <laughs> So I What are thought, the
1: distances, Luke? Uh, so for the swim and then the bike over to Monaco?
2: Yeah, so the the swim between the Gibraltar Strait between Spain and um, Morocco is the swim. They normally say it's around thirteen to fifteen miles. Like it's, oh. it's te- ten miles the as the crow flies, but obviously there's big currents and things like that. So yeah, it's about thirteen to fifteen miles. The bike is um, about it was about eight hundred and fifty miles, and the run was basically 14, 14 marathons. Um, so, yeah, it was about 350 miles-ish. So it turned out to be around 2,000 kilometres, um, so 1,300 miles, I think. Uh, and I planned to do it in 12 days, stupidly enough, and that was, that was the plan. So I, right, right, I've got to head down, I've got to start doing some cycling and swimming and more running challenges and I thought, right, I, I need to do a triathlon because I'd never done one before. I thought, right, I'm going to do it. And in the, in the crazy sort of way of thinking, I opened, and I remember where I was. I was staying, I was staying at my mate's place at the time. I was, in, I was in between houses. And I remember sitting on his lounge. I had my laptop and I opened it up and I looked at Google and I typed in the world's toughest triathlon. That was it. Hit hit search on the top page what caught my eye was about third or the fourth one down and the name of the triathlon. I just saw it and I thought, I've got to do this. And the name was, and it still still runs today. I know the race organizers, uh, really nice people, but the actual name is the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon.
1: Ooh, that's a good t-shirt right there. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you look askance at that?
2: Oh, I just thought, I've got to do this. And then I looked at it and it was a double Ironman distant triathlon. So basically double the swim, double the bike, double the run, um, nonstop. But it was in North Wales. Now, for people who don't know anything about Wales, North Wales is really hilly. In North Wales is the second highest mountain in the UK or the highest mountain in in Wales, which is about 3,500 to 4,000 feet. And the swim was in a very cold lake. The bike ride was up and around these mountains and had about, I think it had about 15,000 or 16,000 feet of climbing um, over the 230 miles of, of riding. And then as soon as you got off the bike, you had to run to the summit of this mountain and you started at sea level. So you started right down by the lake. Um, and you started down there and you had to run to the top, come back down and then finish your double marathon. And I think you did about 10,000 feet of climbing in the run. So that was, that was my first ever triathlon. And it took me just over 35 non non-stop hours.
1: Non-stop. So yeah, no, no sleep. It's unlike the Ultraman in Hawaii, which is a three day stage race. Uh, many people know about that as one of the most difficult triathlons, but you're doing, these packages of uh, swimming six miles, biking ninety the first day, biking one hundred and eighty the second day, and then running a double marathon the third day. But everyone's all freshly shaved and cleaned up and showered and rested. So this thing, the gun goes off for the double brutal extreme triathlon, and, and whoever gets to the finish line, there's no stopping.
2: No, no, you can you can sleep if you want. There's a tent at the at the um, transition <laughs> if you want to sleep. But no, I. I took off and let let's be honest, like the swim is just a casual swim. There are actually people doing a, a single distant Ironman triathlon, so there's there was green swim caps and red swim caps. So you know, if I was on the feet of a, of a green person, I'm a bit like, mm, no, nah, I'm going to let you go. And if there was a red guy sort of hanging out, i was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna suck on the end of these feet. And I'm not going to lie, it was eight laps and I did uh, sit behind quite a few people for a while. And then you get on the bike and it was eight laps of this course, open roads um, as well. So, yeah, just ticked along, ticked along, ticked along. And I think I had about two laps to go and it was getting, you know, just past midnight. It was getting very dark because um, we're in the middle of nowhere, right? It's not like there's street lights everywhere. We're, we're, we're in the middle of Wales. Like there's more sheep than people. I saw more sheep than people on the on the route, right? And a couple of like sort of, I say mountain climbs, not mountains like in, in other parts of Europe or or in, in the States, but you know, quite massive big hills that you've got to go up and over. And, you know, there is signs like beware sheep sleep on the road because the road's warmer than the fields because the cars have been driving it and this is, it warms it. So, there was one descent that was quite a long descent and, you know, like you could tuck down and you could you know, pick up some serious speed. But everyone was just so concerned because if you didn't spot the sheep laying on the on the, on the road, you hit like a speed bump, it flows you off. So you had to be really aware. And at 1 o'clock in the morning when you haven't slept and you've been cycling all day, you know, your mind starts playing tricks on you. And I remember the only one time there was any sort of concern for me was the last lap and my crew said to me, look, we're going to drive behind you because you look rough. And I was like, okay. And there was one point where I was coming up the second final climb and I was zigzagging on the road and I was sort of half stopping and keeping going and the car came up and said, should we rest for five minutes? And I was like, yeah, okay. We pulled over the side of the road and it was when, do you remember when Apple brought out the new iPod or whatever it was back in the day and they put on U2's album? And everyone got it for free. Do you remember that? No. Anyway, so you got this free album, it was U2's Vertigo, I think it was. And I just remember sitting in the car and some song that was on this album, because my mate just got this brand new thing, he blared it like so, played it so loud. And I listened to this one song for like five minutes and I was like, right, got back on the bike, finished the bike leg at three o'clock in the morning or something like that. And then yeah, I had to go with my. Had to have a guide, so someone to run with you to the top of Mount Snowden to start the run league.
1: Oh mercy! So you successfully finished this, and this was a nice confidence booster and stepping stone to your preparation for this uh, other one, which is completely concocted by you. It's not an official event or it's not inspired by any official event. It's just inspired by Luke's uh, use of Google Maps and zooming into the Strait of Gibraltar. So uh, how much time did you have? Uh, where was this in the timeline before you took off and started this um, this, this self-created triathlon?
2: That was the, the year before, about 12 months before. And I had done a bunch of like cycling sportives, multi-day cycle events and races. And I was going to do 10K ocean swim races and 5K ocean swim races. So, you know, I was, I was training a lot and I was doing all disciplines. I did a couple of hundred milers, a couple of hundred Ks races. It's um, just
1: popping into all these races all over the place. Like, uh, yeah, like nothing. <laughs> I'm just in training right now for something bigger, <laughs> putting all the hundred milers to shame. Oh my goodness.
2: And I, I remember the, probably one of the craziest things I did was, I wanted to do a race and it was sold out. And I asked the race directors, oh, come on, let me in. I'm doing this race. It's for training. And they're like, no. And I was like, fine. And it was a, I think it was an 80K race. And I said, well, I'm going to go and do my own training run. And literally a training run, I got a backpack and I had, some, I had my hydration vest and all the rest of it. And I knew sort of where I was going. I think I ran just as a training run by myself. It was like 80, 89 kilometers. So um yeah about 55 miles something like that, just by myself and just ran like through sort of like some forests and some hills because it was like i want to do this this run and that was probably the biggest solo training run that wasn't a race that i did and um yeah there wasn't too many things that that went wrong with that but it just i look back now thinking you know to go and do a 55 60 mile run by yourself just for training is just a bit dumb really (laughs)
1: Oh, you're all you're all teed up for the future uh, quarantine of 2020, when everyone's having to do everything. All the all the virtual competitions. Luke was the first one.
2: Yeah, ex- ex- something so like that. I,
1: I wonder. By this time, you have to been getting some attention uh, from the endurance community and and the media. And I know you're trying to make a go of this as as sort of a a career aspiration, or obviously, an extremely time consuming. And all-consuming challenge. So what about the economic aspects of it? I mean, I know you need support, you need the gear, um, you need to be able to train. So how was the, uh, the economic side of it, the business side of it uh, in process as you're training for these big events?
2: I was convincing myself that I was making progress, <laughs> but in reality, I was, I was just scraping by. So writing magazine articles uh, about my adventures, about training tips and stuff like that, was basically coming in one hand and then I would buy a flight or buy a kit with it to do some other challenge that was coming in coming out going at the same time I basically blew through my savings and and living sort of hand to mouth so to speak I did a little bit of uh, personal training coaching type stuff um, mainly sort of doing with runners and people who are doing other events themselves so I was using my own knowledge of the body, plus my own experimenting and training on myself, and then what I learned from that, plus further research and further study uh, with these clients. So I did that a little bit as well. I started to do some speaking gigs about my challenges. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't doing any sort of big corporate gigs, but running shows and running events and triathlon events and shows and stuff like that. You know, to make to make a few dollars here and there. That was sort of ticking along. Um, I had a few sort of brands that would throw me kit, you know, when I needed it for challenges to, you know, take a few photos and, and do this and whatever. So, I, you know, I was convinced myself that every year I'm taking a step further and I'm getting closer, and you know, there's going to be this one big breakthrough. But in reality, I'm like scrounging to to survive, and I guess you could say that I was truly living my life and doing the having an amazing. Um, adventure of, of a life, but from the from a business perspective, yeah, I was I was barely staying afloat. But at the same time, I was still doing all these challenges, still making a lot of connections, and I guess you could say building my brand from a very very minute brand to a tiny one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> making
2: making progress.
1: I, I like that positive attitude, and clearly, you have something to offer uh, in the in the speaking realm. And I know you've been uh, boosting that as we come forward to present time, but I think we should get to uh, the starting line over there in Morocco. And I guess uh, convincing these these Moroccan authorities that you're going to take off from their beach and then check in with Spain so you can land somewhere. Uh, but tell me about uh, the physical effort, as well as the logistics and the stuff you had to arrange. You must have had a boat escort and and you know uh, getting permits and telling people what you're all about to to get this race going
2: yeah it's the swim is a lot easier than than you think because (laughs) hold on that's a that's a pull
1: quote for the episode from luke the swim (laughs) is a lot easier than you think why don't you look on google google maps and see how close morocco is to spain yeah we can just (sighs) jump in one day okay it's easier than we think that's nice to know okay
2: put my foot in that one Let, let me rephrase that from a logistical standpoint, the swim is a lot easier than you think. <laughs> you got me there, Brad. Um, so there's it's a, it's a swim that people do every year and mm. you basically hire a company from the south of Spain, Tarifa, and they do everything. You basically go with them and they guide you. So there's a boat in front that you follow. There's a small dinghy on the side that has your crew in it that throws food at you when you need it and all the rest of it. And that's basically how, how it goes. Now, I've been in touch with these people and my friend had swam the Gibraltar Strait before. And I've been in touch with these people, this organisation that, that, that does these, these swims. And I said, look, I know the normal way is Spain to Morocco. That's, that's the way that pretty much everyone swims. It's easier, the tides are a little bit more favourable um, for you doing that way. And I said to him two years before when I booked it, I want to go from Morocco to Spain. And he said, it's more difficult. And I said, I know that. My buddy, who he's Adam Walker. He's done the two-way. He went from Spain to Morocco, Morocco to Spain, absolute oh. fish of a swimmer. And he's been, he's been coaching me. He's been helping me. He's advising me. And he said, look, it's a lot more difficult, but I think you can do it. And the guy, Spanish guy, Rafael, he's kept saying to me, it's always it's more difficult. I said, yes, yes, yes. That's all he said to me for two years. We get down to Tarifa, the south of Spain, where his office is. We go to have the the briefing before my swim window opens because you get a week, right? And depending on when the weather is, you go on the weather. You don't just say, I'll go on Tuesday and that's it. The weather tells you. We walk in and we have this briefing and he's like, yeah, so you want to swim from Morocco to Spain? I'm like, yeah, we've been talking about that for two years. And then he said, well, you know, it's more difficult. I was like. Yeah, we've had this conversation via email and on the phone. He said it's also potentially double the distance. And I'm like, hang, hang on, you, you never said that. He said it was more difficult, so I'm ready to swim harder, but you never said it was going to be double the distance. Because of the currents, if you look at the, the top of Morocco, if you think of a point at the top, a peninsula, we had to start all the way over to on the west coast because the currents were going to drag us into the Mediterranean. So, we had to start there and basically get a running, a swimming start to swim up the northwest tip of Morocco before the currents drag us into the Mediterranean to try and make a, a, a land on the southern tip of, of Spain. So, we had this conversation, and he's like, You know, you could be swimming 25, like 30 kilometers, 15 miles, 20 miles, 25 miles you could be doing. And I'm like, Hang on, if I don't complete the swim, this thing's like done it's not a triathlon without <laughs> your a swim. bike
1: sitting there waiting for you in Spain <laughs> oh mercy
2: so he said look the other option you can do is you can swim from Spain to Morocco stand on land get back in the boat and then we drive you back across and then you start and i sort of talked to my crew and i had a documentary made about this challenge as well on it's on Amazon Prime called the ultimate triathlon and we basically just said look the whole point of this was to swim the Gibraltar Strait. You're still doing that if you swim the opposite direction. It just meant that I would have 40, 40 minutes on the boat to come back to Spain, and then I'd jump on the bike that day, and we the first day I had a 65-mile or 70-mile bike ride to finish day one. So we said, fine, let's do it. So we got on the boat. We got a call the night before on like the second or third last day, got in there, and I must admit, as a whole, the swim went pretty much according to plan. It was it was really tough. Um, I had to push at the sprints flat out a couple of times. I had I injured my shoulder during the swim, but it didn't really debilitate me too much. I got to the end, I covered uh, 16 miles in about five hours. Wow. Um, so you've got to remember the currents are pushing me across. So they're pushing me across and in. So I didn't swim at that pace as if I was in the pool but they were pushing me across. I had to try and break through them. Um, so I covered that amount of distance because it just goes from the GPS on the boat that you're traveling uh, next to. And did that, jumped on the boat, and then back to Spain. We had an hour of transition and then had 70, say 70 miles for, to finish day one.
1: Uh, so then you're making your way along the coast of Spain, coast of France, and then the, the bike destination
2: is Monaco? So the end of the bike route is the French border. So I cycled oh. the entire southeast coast of Spain in four and a bit days. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away because I want, I want people to go and watch the documentary on Amazon Prime. But let's just say this, that on one of the days I cycled for about, uh, must have been about 45 miles with no recollection. My crew lost me. My tracker stopped working, and they found me about forty-five miles down the road at like twelve o'clock or one o'clock in the morning, zigzagging, at a, doing about four or five miles an hour. Unresponsive, I was basically, you know, half asleep on the bike. And as soon as they touched me and put me in the back of the van, I just collapsed. I was completely and utterly exhausted. We look at back at my GPS, and I ended up on like a Spanish motorway, and like I had no recollection of this because I filmed myself and I was like, oh, I've got 55 miles to go, I'm really tired and I kept falling asleep. I filmed it on my phone and we had the geo tags on my phone so we could see that's where I was when I filmed it. And then the crew found me like 45 miles down the road and the gap, the spacing time from when I filmed to when they found me, no one knows where I went apart from on the, on the GPS. It's, it's crazy. And uh, and the state that I was in was was insane, and that was really the the start of the end of of the ultimate triathlon. Like I finished it, I did two thousand kilometers in twelve days. There's definitely a few twists in there, but uh, it was a it was an eye opening experience into the world of endurance sports and also into the preparation. So
1: I guess that sleep deprivation would be the main factor here that sent you off the rails and behaving strangely and not remembering and things like that
2: at the time we thought that's exactly what it was because the second like the first day didn't get much sleep we got like four hours five hours sleep the second day I put in a massive shift and did 235 miles um, on the second day on the bike with about you know probably five or 6,000 feet of climbing. So it was a long day. And then the third day was another 200-mile day and that's like when the sort of wheels sort of first fell off. While we were there, we thought, yeah, I'm just exhausted. I'm pushing myself in sleep deprivation. In hindsight now, I know that it was the, basically the, the 12 to 18 months lead up into this challenge where everything went, nothing went wrong. I, I basically overtrained I was overworked and I basically ran myself into the ground. So to give you an idea, I was training 25 to 30 hours a week, swimming, cycling, running, strength training, all that stuff. And then I was doing about 25 to 30 hours a week of organizing this challenge, trying to get Uh sponsorship, doing logistics, all the rest of it. And then I was probably doing about 10 to 15 hours a week of marketing my speaking business, Uh uh, doing personal training clients, doing all that sort of stuff. So 25 to 30 hours a week of endurance training, 25 to 30 hours a week of organizing, plus another 15 to 20 hours a week, just doesn't work. I was doing that for about 12 to 18 months into the lead-up. So when I got to the start line, I was already completely cooked. And then it was just a matter of time before my body broke down. But what people will see in the documentary and what I do today is, I'll I'll jump into that from from what I'm about to say, is people will see in the documentary just how mentally strong a human can be. I'm not going to say me, I'm going to say a human can be. And I basically was in a state mentally where I continued to encourage my body to keep going. My body didn't tell my mind, oh, this is getting really hard. You should tell me to stop. And my mind wasn't telling me, stop, stop, stop. My body broke and and stopped before my mind did. My mind was still with it. And my crew were telling me when they were running with me towards the end, like I am I was talking to myself, come on, Luke, keep going, keep going, and I can barely take another step at you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. But so it, sh- it showed everyone in the documentary just how – mentally tough we can be and also how much further we can push our bodies so like that was that was mind-blowing for me and also to see it people can see it in a documentary is really cool as well and now what I do for a living is I call myself a mental performance coach but I basically teach others how to train their mind to optimize their physical performance just the way that I prepared my mind for the ultimate trathon as a professional athlete um, over decades of being you know, an athlete for, from two different sports.
1: So I'm curious. We, we hear a lot about this concept that we can break through these barriers and, and we're capable of far more than we imagine with the mental strength. And you clearly prove that, and many people have proved that with these great athletic feats. Uh, but then on a day-to-day basis, is there, is there a necessity to – kind of balance this like you know that you have more in the tank but to be sensible let's say for that 12 to 18 month period when you overworked and overtrained, um, clearly you willed your way through that period as well because it sounded pretty exhausting um, is there a way that we can kind of tap into that incredible mental power uh, at times and then the rest of the time be kind and gentle and take care of ourselves and how do you navigate that that back and forth
2: yeah, 100%. You can, and that's how I live my life now. Um, definitely, like I, I have a switch in my head. When it's go time, I tell myself when it's really hard, um, I say, okay, it, it's go time, and I flick that switch. And I don't turn it, like a lot of people say they've got an alter ego, right? A lot of people when they race, <laughs> they say they've got an alter ego or, you know, like when, when things get really tough, there's a, there's a bad, bad person that comes out. I'd, I would not say I have that. I just say when it gets really hard, it 's almost like okay i 've got the key and i 'm unlocking my toolbox, and now I have all these tools that's that 's allowing me to then push myself now don 't get me wrong, like it sounds really simple and sounds really cool, but i 've been training my mind since I was a fourteen year old kid that 's when I first started meditating i didn 't know it was meditation at the time, but I was at an elite sport in Australia as a as a teenager and this performance coach came in and I was with this elite representative team at the 14 and told us to lay down on our backs and deep breathing and focus on your breath and you know, all this sort of stuff, meditation, right? What, what we all know now. And that was back in the early 90s. And i continued to do that. And I've been involved with sports psychologists as a teenager as well and all the different exercises that, that they used to give us. And I've been doing that my entire life. So I've always had that underlying curiosity and practice that I did before games at um, before, like uh, preseason, to for the for the goals for the for the season, all the rest of it. So to go forwards so and then come backwards is, is now. I live my life in a more of a holistic way as 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 well. Um, I married an osteopath, so that was always a good thing. <laughs> she keeps me in check, um, but also I have learnt from my mistakes. And as I alluded to earlier. People might be listening to this and going like, yeah, I I get it. He's doing all these big, crazy challenges. And what was he running away from? And this is a question I used to get a lot. And it makes sense. I can see people online now to doing things similar to what I was doing or just racing every weekend or whatever. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's more to that. Because one of the things that we didn't touch on, but there was an underlying um, under sort of current underneath me was I was having this really dark battle with depression. And I didn't talk about it with anyone for a long period of time. I'm talking about years. I still had this chip on my shoulder that I didn't um, fulfill my potential as a soccer player. So I had this athletic chip on my shoulder. I had a loss of identity because I went from a soccer player one day to an ultra endurance athlete the next day. And I didn't have any time to, you know, I think, grieve the loss of soccer in my life because I've been playing soccer since I was four and I retired when I was 28, and I was basically trained full-time from a 14-year-old to a 28-year-old. So then all of a sudden, I'm finished, stopped playing, stopped training, stopped everything, didn't have any time to sort of process that, threw myself into endurance sports. So one of the underlying uh, drivers for me to continue to do these big, crazy challenges was the fact that I was battling with depression and I became addicted to endurance sports. Because the only time that I felt alive was when I was doing these big challenges or going out for five-hour bike rides or four-hour runs or cycling through the night. And then I developed insomnia for about 18 months, where at its worst, I would sleep about eight hours a week. Some nights, I wouldn't even get into bed. And I also then started to binge eat because when it was two o'clock in the morning and I felt really low. The only way I could make myself feel better was either go out for a bike ride or go for a run or I ended up eating bags of nuts or a tub of ice cream or whatever. And that made me feel good for about five minutes and then I felt really crap. And then I would say, right, tomorrow I'm going to go for a five-hour run, not eat for 48 hours so my weight maintained so no one else on the outside would notice and repeat, repeat, repeat. And it got so bad that i didn't want to live anymore i took myself off to and i stood on a top of a bridge twice not wanting to be here and it might sound like i'm just sort of saying this off the cuff and i don't and i don't mean to sound really blase about it but this was in 2013 2014 when it was really dark time for me the ultimate triathlon was 2015 And I spent the next 18 months after the Ultimate Triathlon in 2016 and 2017 not doing any physical activity, which we'll touch on in a second, but really spending the time to understand who I am, how I want to live my life, what are my values. And if I really want to continue to do these endurance sports, I have to take a step back and understand that it Mm. can't be always forward, 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 forward. It needs to be forward when I'm ready and then several steps back. Forward when I'm ready, and then several steps back. So, hopefully, that fills in a few gaps for you and, and for the listeners as what was that, that real underlying drive that was pushing me to get to, to where I did before the ultimate triathlon, which then tipped me over the edge, <laughs> which then literally um, ruined my body from a physiological level because I had a bunch of different tests with um, Dr. Tamsin Lewis. Um, you might yep, be familiar. Heard with. heard her
1: that. on podcasts before. Nourish, Balance, Thrive, I think.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. She's been on there. So I worked with her for a period of time and we did a bunch of tests and my endocrine system stopped secreting certain hormones um, and that was secreting hormones too much. My nervous system was uh, needed a bit of a restart because I was having headaches every morning for six hours at a time. And I spent the next 18 months doing no physical activity and I had to take a step back, as I said. So then through that, through that time of reflection and physically not being able to to do any exercise, and I'm also sleeping 14 hours a a day, I then realised, to answer your question specifically, yes, we can tap into mental strength if and when we want it. But I believe for myself and for others, I, I truly believe this, that if you have those tools, to do it in a healthy, sustainable way for lifelong, like life longevity, quality of life longevity, then you have to understand your values, what you want out of endurance sports, what you want out of physical activity, um, what you want out of life to have that um, draining, um, energy zapping uh, sport world plus your everyday life world and understand that they're not separate they're together. And when you understand that, then you know when you can turn on that mental strength to push yourself, but then also when you should turn it off and take a step back and let yourself recover.
1: Wow. Very well said. And I appreciate you sharing that whole story of really the ups and downs. And clearly you've taken uh, both the, the highs and the lows to the extreme, but I think everyone listening can relate in some way. And at some level to overdoing it, uh, chasing the high that we get from whatever it is, exercise, uh, making money, excelling in career, who knows what. And then kind of uh, having that uh, physical body or even our mental exhaustion uh, come into the mix as well. And I was racing for nine years on the pro triathlon circuit and had uh, some great, great heights and and great victories. And then had those periods of time where I was sleeping 12 hours a day. And the only reason I got out of bed is because it was 10 a.m. And, you know, the body just took so much abuse and it was really difficult to kind of, um, to calibrate that. And I'm also curious, like, you you know you, you made these great achievements, and I, I wonder if they kind of go hand in hand with the depths that you describe and that you suffered from, for example, not doing any exercise for eighteen months and sleeping fourteen hours a day. It sounds like a bummer. I'm sure it was a tough time in your life, um, waking up in the middle of the night and, and eating a bunch of food and all those things, but it's possible that uh, your, whatever it is, your personality attributes and all these things that are into the mix here. Uh, you were the the same guy that had to suffer through those lows in order to access the the crazy, uh, achievements that, you know, you put up on the board.
2: Yeah. Like, can I sit here right now and say I could have achieved everything that I achieved if I was in a really great place mentally. Healthy,
1: balanced, happy, Luke, walking down the street, singing a song. Yeah, I wonder.
2: I I would like to think, I'm going to phrase it like this, I'm going to like to think I wouldn't have been so stupid to do as much as I did. Because I look at my training and what I was doing back then, there's no way I would do that now.
1: Right. And that that brings up a big follow-up question for all of us to consider. And I've talked about this a lot, where these challenges and these uh, adventures that we put out there, uh, such as the Ironman is a huge global international brand, multi-million dollar brand, uh, putting these races on the calendar, organizing them, attracting participants. And I'm going to argue that uh, for someone with a, a normal life circumstance, such as family, career, uh, commuting, um, busy with all kinds of other stressors that we face in day-to-day life, um, I'm not sure those distances are appropriate for 90% of the field outside of the professional division or uh, the you know the, the dilettante that's retired at age 41 has nothing else to do with their day except sleep and train. And maybe that the, the, the whole world would be better off if the, the marathon was 13 miles instead of 26. And the Ironman was a half Ironman instead of a full Ironman.
2: It's a, it's a really interesting question if you look at it from you know, a wider perspective on health. right? So I, I used to term earlier quality of life longevity of not just being fit now, but being fit and healthy. Because you know, no doubt a lot of your listeners know, there's a difference between being fit and healthy. You could be super fit, but extremely unhealthy. I was super fit when I was doing the ultimate triathlon. You know, I could cycle 200 miles a day, no problem. You know? But was I healthy? No way in hell I was healthy. You could be really, really healthy. You could eat the really good, real food, diet, whatever that diet is for you. You can sleep, you can meditate, you can do all that sort of stuff, but you might only just do walking. That's your exercise. You, you can be super healthy, but are you really fit? No, you're not going to be fit. So being fit and healthy over a long period of time, I think you have to take um, drastic measures from what most people live on a day day to day basis, a year to year basis. Right now, is you know I think could you do an Ironman? Is that distance too long? I think it depends on your life situation, as you rightly said. But you know, people who are doing a couple of half Ironmans and a couple of full Ironmans and a couple of marathons like and who are working 40 hours and have family i'm like okay we all know where this has gone because there's been thousands (laughs) of people in the past who have done the same thing there's going to be Mm. thousands of people in the future that they do this and we see it in the pros as well okay they they have a four or five year window where they do this stuff and then they either have continued injuries or they have a significant injury or they just feel really crappy and they think, oh, I fell out of love with the sport. And then they step away from the sport for years and don't do it again. And they, oh, I fell out of love with it. No, what happened was your, your endocrine system basically stopped and you think it was just falling out of love, but you felt so low is because you weren't secreting certain hormones or you're secreting too many hormones. This is just my opinion. And that's why you felt like you fell out of love with the sport and you felt low for 12 months and you didn't do any training because you're just done with that now. And it took you 12 months or so to recover from those five years.
1: Yeah. And again, on a less extreme level, I see this happening all over the place in the fitness scene where... Someone uh, buys a trainer package of a dozen sessions on January first and goes in there with great intentions and enthusiasm. And the trainers they're calling for one more rep. You see the TV commercials, uh, people sweating on the Peloton bike or in front of the mirror. I just saw a new one on the internet where there's a hologram in the mirror urging you on to do another rep. And all this stuff is well-meaning and well-intentioned, but it clearly turns out of balance so frequently. And then the person just somehow uh, winds up with a reference point that, oh my gosh, I haven't been to the gym in six weeks. I can't believe it. It, it seems like time flies. But I think we, we, we do a good job at avoiding things that bring us pain and suffering rather than happiness and contentment. And we'll, we will drift in that direction every time when our approach is out of balance. And I think it's, you know, congratulations to you for finishing the ultimate triathlon and all that, but also for taking that 18 month period for self-reflection and physical healing, and I'd, I'd love to see all those zeros in your training log because I think that's a testament that you were open and accepting that it was time to to go on a new path.
2: Yeah, it was. I needed to, and I had uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, smart man, married her. Um, she was a massive uh, support for me in that period period of time, and I opened up to her quite a lot about my battles with my mental health and started to open up and talk about that more openly. Uh, when I was doing talks, and you know a little bit I opened up but uh you know was seeing a therapist for for a long period of time to help me as well so I was doing a lot of work and I realized that i'm i'm not an I'm not just an athlete I do athletic things, but i'm my identity isn't isn't you know molded around being an athlete and i one of the things I think that and that um Didn't didn't help with my depression and my mental health was I attached myself to that tag of being an athlete as a soccer player and then all of a sudden that was gone. I said I had a loss loss of identity. I realized I'm I've got to be an athlete because that's all I've ever Mm -hmm. been. You know, so I think a lot of people and not just talking about elite age groupers or all pros. Everyday people they say I'm an accountant and I'm a marathon runner. And they attach themselves to that. So then all of a sudden they do a marathon and whether they're self-coached or they have a coach and the coach says, all right, for the next two weeks, don't do anything. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to just listen to your body, do whatever. Do, I would say, majority of the people do nothing for two weeks? No. They'll have two or three days where they do nothing and they'll, oh, I'm just doing a 20-minute run. I'm just doing a 30-minute run. Oh, oh, I just went on the bike. I went to the pool because it's you know low impact. But they miss the whole point. And with athletes who I coach now as well, the first thing I tell to them about recovery, I was like, "When you feel like your soft tissue, um, the soft tissues have recovered, which after a marathon, depending on your fitness and your experience, it might be a couple of days." Uh I go, "Your nervous system is only just about to start to recover because if you dive down into physiology, and I'll be really brief to not bore some of your listeners, is." What contracts your muscle? What what signal to contract? What signal sent, is sent to your muscle to contract? It's electric signal, right? Where's that electric signal comes from? Your nervous system. So if your nervous system is firing constantly to tell your muscles to contract, well then, wouldn't that make your nervous system more tired than your your mus, your muscles? So if your muscles feel like okay they're recovered, well guess what? Your nervous system still needs more time because. It's what's telling your muscles to contract. So it's working. So I always tell people that story, but also remember, you have to recover. You have to let your nervous system recover. And I say, well, how do I know when I'm recovered? And I'm like, you will know. Don't want to run, but you will know when you're fully recovered.
1: You know Kelly Starrett, right? The, uh, yeah. the ready-stayed author of uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard. Uh, he references scientific study that the number one uh, metric to measure for how do you know when you're ready to train again uh, is called desire to train. And it's a psychological assessment. It beats any blood test or lactic acid meter or any of that stuff. Uh, HRV, all, all that technology is great. Uh, but I think we've gone overboard on that stuff. And we need to just go back and look at that uh, you know, desire to train and lead a balanced life. But that was really well explained because clearly. Uh, the central nervous system, the central governor theory, Timothy Noakes' work, uh, that's the thing that we have to look at. And that's where you get the hormonal imbalances and the inability to control inflammation. And so you have these super highs and these binge periods of, of great training. And then you're uh, hit like a truck for six weeks after that because you didn't listen to common sense. And I'm talking from experience for sure, because a lot of times uh, with the inflammatory processes and the fight or flight response and the excess cortisol production, you wake up in the morning, you feel great. Your muscles are supple, they're loose, but it's because you're in an inflammatory state from the stress hormones pumping through your bloodstream, and you can get through a good week of training or two weeks, but you're going to be paying the price later. So very, very well said. A great message, man. And I think we have to watch the documentary. You have a book out called Chasing Extreme. I guess you can find that everywhere.
2: And yeah, um, on Amazon, it's uh, on Audible as well. So if you listen to books, I would definitely say go and check it out because I actually recorded about three hours of bonus material at the like spread out over the end of each chapter to um, give a little bit more insight into what I was thinking, what I went through one, on adventures, but also mentally um, during parts of of my story. And my book, "Chasing the Stream, is basically an autobiography. It's a more in depth. Uh, conversation of 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 what we just had.
1: Love it, Luke. Thank you so much for spending the time. And what's what's next on the horizon?
2: So I'm just literally finished my recovery period from uh, a little run that I did in August. I did uh, what's it called the calendar club, or the cool kids call it, where you run a mile for each uh, for the date of each uh, day in the month. So you run one mile on the first two miles on the second, three miles on the second, all the way up to 31 miles on the 31st. So in August, I ran 496 miles over the 31 days.
1: Wow, how fun. I've never heard of that. I guess I'm not it was, a cool kid.
2: The yeah, calendar club. Uh, it, was, it was actually quite a lot of fun. Um, I had a bunch of people who come and ran with me for a few days and things like that. And you know, don't get me wrong, the last, if I'm honest, the last sort of five days were a bit <laughs> like... Sounds- you know, Sounds right, right, harder than the first
1: day. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, but <laughs> to make it even more like crazy was the – so I did that on the 1st of August. On the 30th of July, I did a virtual Everesting um, in my lounge room on, on my turbo trainer um, because obviously all of my events, all my challenges, and everything that I had planned for this year was canceled. And I was, I was doing a lot of cycling from the start of the year and a bit of running, and I was probably the fittest I've ever been cycling and all on my turbo trainer i hate the turbo trainer but it was just like you know i didn't want to go out on the roads here in the uk because the drivers won't get into that but uh, i was super fit on the bikes i'm going to do this virtual everything thing and then a couple of weeks before i did that someone said you should do the calendar club that's up your alley and i was like i'll give it a go and it might sound like oh he hasn't changed a bit he's still doing these insane challenges well I had didn't do any. I didn't do any training over about three or four hours of low intensity on the bike into the lead up to the virtual everything. So, my training anything over well, I didn't do really any high intensity training over probably an hour. I did a few bits and pieces, but mainly it was all threshold stuff and below um, on the bike, a little bit of running, and then I did the the virtual everything. and then I had a, obviously a day's rest, and then did the the calendar club, and I wasn't. Running hard, I think my probably my average heart rate on thirty seven, relatively fit. Yeah, my average heart rate for most runs was one thirty, something like that, one thirty five, and just cruising along, feeling good. Pace was irrelevant. But then now, as we talked about, just recovery. Before we finish up, I probably I I was going to do another running challenge, and I ran a couple of times after. I'm like, you know what, I don't feel right. I did no running, no physical activity for four weeks at all. Like I did my morning walk around the block at normally six o'clock in the morning. I did a couple of walks in the day, like we're talking for a mile or so. But did I put my running shoes on? Did I get on my bike at all? No, did nothing for about a month. And then I did a couple of half an hour bike rides for a couple of weeks. So in six weeks, I basically did Two hours of cycling at like really, really just ticking the legs over. So that's that's my evolution of where I've came to where I'm pushing, pushing, pushing during these, you know, 33 days of the virtual everything and then the calendar club. But then I pulled right back. And I spent the last six weeks basically taking care of my body, having a few massages and treatment from my wife. And now I'm starting to build. Uh, into what I'm planning on doing in about nine months' time in August next year, which is still a little bit top secret, but I'm, I'm planning something. Um, I'm going to say the biggest thing I, I've ever done. It's bigger than the ultimate triathlon. And, you know, I'm giving myself nine months. I've, I've hired a coach. Um, first time I've ever hired a coach is just because I've realised I've taken myself as far as I can go, so it's time to take myself even further. And I'm basically giving them nine months to get me as fit as I can be and and we're cracking on with that next August. So that's where I'm at right now.
1: Okay, man. We're gonna keep track of you and find out this top secret challenge. I suppose we can find you on social media, everything else.
2: Yeah, at Luke Taberski and my website's luketaberski.com. if you want to see some of the mindset coaching that I do. There's also an online course that I wrote that's been really helpful for my own clients and for people all around the world to um, train their mind because a lot of people want to get mentally tougher they they want to increase their pace um, when they're struggling and they want to remove those negative um, self-talk but they don't know how they're not all been involved in elite sport like i was as a kid so i basically all the tools and techniques that i've used over the years i put that into a course if you want to check it out luke all right luke
1: taberski thank you everybody for listening da, 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 da.
2: Primal Blueprint
0: listeners don't compromise on Pantry Classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like Kiki Chipotle Lime, Creamy Classic, zesty garlic aioli or savory pesto to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards there's a condiment to complement every taste bud be sure to stock up on primal kitchen avocado oil extra virgin olive oil and new balsamic vinegar of modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish whether you're grilling baking broiling braising sautéing or stir frying Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code Primal Blueprint at checkout.